Our scripture is found this morning in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we end a series that we have been in here for several weeks called Grace Awakening. And uh, so enjoyed this series and I would say to you if you hear something in the message this morning that triggers your thinking and you think I want to know more, I want to hear more, then all the other sermons are online. You can go to our website and uh, download them and and perhaps uh, through the truths from Romans uh, you will discover some great, great life-changing truths. I would also say to you that as we come to this final sermon, uh, Romans 8 is this chapter where Paul swells uh, up into this, uh, this great uh, uh, praise to God for what he has done. Theologians were polled uh, at one point, so the most prominent theologians of the time, and they were asked if they were stranded on a desert island and they could have one chapter of the Bible, what chapter would it be? And the overwhelming response was Romans chapter 8. And so it is from this chapter in Romans chapter 8 that we discover some truths for living this morning that are absolutely essential for us if we are going to get through life with joy in the journey. Uh, The reality is, is that the world is a crazy place. Kind of goes without saying, but perhaps I should give you some, um, some facts Depending on how you measure what a war is, right now there are 33 wars that are going on in the world as we speak. Some will arrive at a different number based on their measurement, but 33 wars. Uh, Some of these wars have had intense casualties. Uh, You may not realize that the drug war in Mexico has cost Uh, 150,000 lives. We think right now of ISIS and the terror that they inflict on Christians and on others around the world, Uh, but you may not realize that the war in Afghanistan began in 1978, and that war in Afghanistan, uh, the the numbers are hard to estimate, has uh, taken somewhere between 1.2 and 2 million lives since 1978. 
The world is a crazy place. Not only is the world a crazy place, but our county is a crazy place. All you have to do is read the paper. And when you do, almost every day, it's another uh, case of abuse. It is a violent crime. It is difficult things to stomach that happen sometimes right here in our own back door. We struggle to understand and struggle to understand why things could happen as they do and, and people could be as they are. And, and so our county's a crazy place, but I would go on to say that some of you are in a personal war. Your marriage is like a war zone right now. You came in here this morning, and while you sit here and look good on the outside, on the inside of your home, it isn't pretty. It isn't pleasant. Others of you are fighting a war on some kind of addiction that for years has gripped you, for years has wrestled you to the ground. And if you could do one thing this morning, if you could overcome one thing, it would be alcohol. If you could overcome one thing, it would be your addiction to prescription drugs. If there's one thing, if somebody said to you this morning, I will grant you one request, and you can make that one request, you walked in here an addict, and you would walk out a free man. You walked in here addicted, and you would walk out free of your addiction. You so long to be free of it. Is there hope for the world? Is there hope for this county? Is there hope for you? Paul says in these verses, yes, there is. He begins by saying this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There are four words I want you to leave with today, and here they are. God is for you. God is for you. As a matter of fact, I want us to say those words together. Let's do it now. God is for you. Turn to somebody around you and let's do that. God is for you. The reality is that I know that many of you do not believe that. You may believe it intellectually, but you don't believe it experientially. You may believe it up here, but you don't believe it down here. Some of you don't believe it up here. I'm so glad you're here today. My task and my desire is to help convince you that God is for you. At the end of our time together, I will give an invitation, not for you to walk down here unless you want to, but for you to trust Christ with your very life, for you to put all of your eggs in his basket, for you to say, Jesus, from this day forward, I am trusting you as my Savior. I'll give you that opportunity to do that today. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know? He gives three reasons we know that God is for us. God is for you, number one, because he gave you his son. God is for you because he gave his only son. Uh, Paul says here, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Wendy and I have two children, both of whom are here today. We love them dearly. We could not imagine subjecting either of our children to pain as a decision of our own unless it was for their good. We couldn't imagine that. Many of you know that Trent's had multiple surgeries and scheduled to have another one in a couple of weeks. And it has been difficult at times for us as parents to watch him suffer, to watch him endure physical pain, grueling pain. We could not imagine subjecting him or subjecting Hannah to pain as a choice of ours. But the language here is clear. God put Jesus through the cross himself. You see, when we have children, we get excited in their birth announcements, and we get pumped about it, and we're so excited that these children are coming into the world. But when Jesus came through the birth canal, when he came through the birth canal of Mary, There was a cross that cast a shadow over that cradle. Jesus came to die. He came to die. God gave him up because of your sin and because of mine. We know that God is for us because he gave his only son. I think it helps in verse 32 to put our names in there. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, and just put your name in there. Let's do that. When I get to four, just say your name. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for? Wow. He gave him up for Jerry. He he gave him up for Dina. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for Craig. We know God is for us because he gave us his only son. Listen to the last half of this verse. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, from a philosopher's point of view, this is a greater to lesser argument Paul makes. It's a great philosophical argument, and the Romans would have heard it well. If God would give the greatest thing he had, who is his son, Jesus Christ, will he not under Christ give you everything else you need after he has given his greatest gift? Let me put it this way. Many of you know that I struggled to pay for college. It was difficult, very poor. Went without food, just struggled. After my freshman year, tuition went up a thousand bucks. Didn't think I could pay it. Talked to the dean of students, said, I've got to go. And he said, Hold on. And so came up with a thousand bucks somewhere, and I stayed. After my sophomore year, tuition went up a thousand dollars again. As a matter of fact, in my four years at Wofford, the tuition went up 40%. 
I'd saved since I was in sixth grade to pay for college, never anticipated I would be faced with this rise in tuition every single, some, every single year. And so year two, it went up, and I went back to the dean of students and said, I can't come back. I'll transfer up to App State. Much cheaper, I can do that. And he said, uh, at the end of my sophomore year, I got a couple guys I want you to meet. And sure enough, I walked into the president's office past a Rolls Royce. And when I saw the Rolls Royce, I thought this is going to be a good meeting. Just a slight hint that maybe somebody I was meeting with could help me out. So I sat down in that room with a couple of guys, and they asked me a lot of questions about myself. And they told me they both had graduated from Wofford, and one of them was uh, head of an insurance company, and the other was head of AAA in Florida. And uh, they had done very well for themselves, and they wanted to know my story, and I told them my story. The meeting finished. I left. It lasted about an hour, and I went home and... uh, you know, on campus, I was working there that summer, and uh, about a week later, the dean called me in, and he said, listen, those guys heard your story, they appreciate your story, and they're giving you a full ride for your next two years of school. Wow. I was thrilled. Rolls Royce, good hint. And uh, thrilled about that. Comes the end of my junior year, and believe it or not, tuition goes up again, another thousand, eleven, twelve hundred bucks, something like that. Went back to the dean of students. I said, Here I am again. The tuition has gone up again. He said, What are you doing here? I said, The tuition has gone up again. He said, Jerry, don't you remember that meeting you had a year ago? Yeah. He said, Do you think if those guys who foot the whole bill that they're going to stump their toe on twelve hundred dollars? Do you think that's going to bother them? What was he saying? Jerry, if if they say they take care of it all, they take care of it all. That's what Paul is saying here. Do you think God's going to give you Christ and leave you hanging on everything else you need in life? Do you think he's going to come through with the greatest gift he could ever give any human being, which is his only son, and leave you hanging with everything else underneath? Absolutely no way at all. It's a greater to lesser argument. God who gave Christ will with him graciously give you all things. God is for you because he gave his only son. Secondly, we know that God is for you because he raised his only son. Paul then asked a couple of questions. They're not rhetorical questions. They're real questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What does it mean to bring a charge? To bring a charge means this. It means to rush into a courtroom when somebody's on trial and say, they're guilty, I know they are. That's what it means to bring a charge. What are they guilty of? Here's what they did. I know when they did it. I saw them do it. They're guilty. I know they're guilty. That's what it means. Who does that? Revelation 12, verse 10, answers that question. Revelation 12, verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Who does that? Satan himself. When does he do it? All day long and all night long. What does he do? He goes into the throne room of God and he says, hey, you know that Justin guy? You know that Justin guy who claims to be one of yours? He's really not. And he accuses. He accuses. 
You know Rachel doesn't belong to you. And he accuses. And guess what? If he can walk into that throne room of God over the dead body of Jesus, he has a case. But what if that Jesus who died for Justin and for Mary, uh, that Jesus who died for Regina, what if that Jesus who died was raised from the dead, steps up from the throne, looks Satan in the eye, and says to Satan, hey, you may know what she has done, but may I remind you of what I did on the cross by dying for her sins, by dying for his sins. Satan, at that moment, turns tail and runs. Why? He has no answer for the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? No answer. There's nothing he can say to that. If Jesus is dead, Satan has a case. But Paul says here in answer, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Jesus died, Jesus was raised. And when Jesus was raised, Jesus ascended. And when Jesus ascended, Jesus sat down in a position of authority in your life, in a position of authority in Satan's world. And when Satan marches into the throne room of God, accusing you, Jesus steps up, accusation falls. You, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, are completely covered by Christ himself. Wow. Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elected is God who justifies, who is to condemn. All right, so the accuser brings the charge, the condemnation is the sentence. This is what they've done and this is what they owe. Again, Jesus looks Satan eye to eye and says, I paid that debt. Paid in full. There's no balance. On the cross, I died. Three days later, you remember this, Satan. God raised me up. Oh, Satan, you may have partied between Friday and between Sunday, but Sunday was coming and you didn't know that. And when God raised me up, Satan, I now cover Michael. I I cover John. Malcolm Mugridge, great Christian author, has written great works, was not always a Christian. As a matter of fact, he was an ardent opposer of the faith. So much so that he was Stalin's biographer and writer in Russia would travel over to, as a historian, write about the defeat of religious and Christian freedom in communist Russia. He was there. It happened to be the week before Easter. He had met with folks from the Kremlin. He had written and done his work, and he decided on his way out to go to a Russian Orthodox church. One of those still allowed to worship during this awful regime of Stalin. He goes to the Russian Orthodox 
Orthodox Church. And when he does, as he is there at the end of the service, the priest steps up and he says these words, Christ is risen. And how do they respond? He is risen indeed. I'm thinking probably it was a little louder than that. If you're under the cloud of Russian communism and you choose to still go to church on Easter Sunday, my guess is when it comes to that moment and the priest says, Christ is risen, you're going to do what? He is risen indeed. And Muggridge said when he heard that and he saw the expression on their faces, something in him changed. And he said, they really believe that Jesus is alive. I've got to meet that Jesus. And God turned his life around. God is for you because he gave his only son. Number two, God is for you. Because he raised his only son. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God is for you because he listens to his only son. Say, Jerry, what do you mean? I want to digress for a moment to say that for the past few weeks, I've had this restlessness in my heart. It was really three weeks ago tonight, uh, while many of you were at the Toby Mac concert, I was at home in the living room by myself and, and just feeling this gnawing emptiness, this restlessness. And I prayed that night, God, I don't want this to be filled with any counterfeit. I've done that before. I don't want any counterfeit. I don't want any idea of success. I don't want any position. I don't want anything that could feel this restlessness other than you. You fill me with you. I want you more than anything, God. And as I wept that night on the sofa praying, grabbed a book that someone had recommended to me months ago. And when I began to read... I saw this quote from Augustine that I had heard just 30 minutes prior listening to Ravi Zacharias. And I'm so thick-headed that God has to hit it to me about three or four different ways. Why it takes that, I don't know. I'm sure I'm the only one in the room like that. Come on, guys. All right. But I heard it that way and this way and a third way. And I said, okay, God, I won't let go until you drill this into me. I was working on this sermon. And I always present the gospel in the, uh, what is called the forensic way, which is true. The legal terms, Jesus died on our behalf as our substitute on the cross, satisfying God's wrath against our sin. He took our place, absolutely, yes. He satisfied the legal requirements against us as sinners, absolutely, yes. But, but in addition to that, read uh, verse 29 of chapter 8. 
For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Here we go. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. All right, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Is that if I only hang out on the legal side of it, I get this clear, objective understanding. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus as my Savior. Jesus died for my sins. He rose again. He intercedes on my behalf. And it's like a courtroom deal. And I understand it. But if you've ever hired an attorney, you, once you hire the attorney and once the case is over, you're not friends with the attorney anymore. And that's good stuff. But it, I struggle to connect still on that level. Until I realized that the same Jesus who stepped in and took my punishment is also my big brother. That's what Romans 8.29 says. That he, he became a firstborn. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Alright, so when Jesus died on the cross... Not only did he secure my salvation, not only did he take care of the sin problem I had, but he took care of the empty problem that I have too. He took care of the relational issues I have. He took care of the heart issues that I have. He's my big brother. How is that different? Well, if an attorney uh, stands up for you, that's good, right? And, and so grateful. But if a big brother does, wow. Wow then everybody else better back off. Why? Well, he'll kick butt and take names later. That's what big brothers do. They just step up. Why? Because they love you. If we back up a little further in Romans 8, we discover that God, once you come to faith in Christ, sends his spirit into our hearts, and his spirit cries out, Abba, or Daddy, God. Daddy. If I could get the love I have for my two kids, which in my mind is immeasurable, and to know that that love is so minute compared to the great love that God the Father has for me, that he sends his spirit into my heart, and when I pray, I can say, Dad, Dad. It's not sacrilegious. It's not disrespectful. It's right. And it's good. And Jesus is a big brother. The family of God is expansive of all the people who've trusted Christ, who call him dad. So what happens? Satan steps in and he accuses do you know what I'm prone to do sometimes? You are too. Listen to what he says. Have you ever had the broken record? And it says, loser, failure, mistake, sinner, drunk. And then Jesus, our defense attorney, says, let me present you the legal documents. And we go, Whew. and then he drops, drop kicks Satan, and we go, yes, that's big brother. 
we must remember both. God is for you because he listens to his only son. Let me illustrate it like this. Little boy, he's standing at an odd place in a city at the sidewalk. And as he stands there, an older man comes by and says to the little boy, son, why are you standing here? And the little boy says, <laughs> uh, waiting on the bus. And the man says, son, the bus stop is down there. The boy says, that's all right, I'll wait here. And the older man says, son, listen, the bus doesn't stop here. The bus stop is down there. And the little boy respectfully looks at the old man and says, I'll wait here. The old man shrugs his shoulders and kind of huffs, and he keeps walking down, and he gets to the bus stop. And right when he does, he hears screeching tires, and he turns around to see why the tires are screeching. And sure enough, the bus stops right where the little boy is standing. And the boy turns to get on the bus when he sees the man looking back in disbelief that the bus has stopped. And the little boy leans out the door, yells down at the man, and says, the bus driver's my daddy. (laughs) There are more than one occasion in your life when you need to look at the enemy and says, and say, hey, that, that, that God is my daddy. He's my dad. And he'll stop the bus wherever he needs to. And he'll put you on the bus whenever he needs to. And he'll take you wherever you need to go. Amen? That's what daddies do. Oh. Why would we ever spurn such a love? Then Paul asked these questions. Who shall separate us from the what? The love of Christ. The love. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All of the above, Paul says, no. No. And and the Roman Christians under Nero were about to face everything in this list. Everything in this list they were going to face. And Paul says, none of that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors. That means we win over and above. It's a landslide victory through him who loved us. And then Paul gives this list, for I'm sure that neither death nor life. Why does he give this list? This list is for all of us, I'm convinced. Why? Death, death of a parent, death of a child, death of a husband, death of a wife, death of a close friend. Life, the cancer diagnosis, getting fired from your job, disappointment from an unfaithful spouse. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, those things you can't see that seem to come out of nowhere that haunt you, nor things present, what you're going through right now, nor things to come, what you wonder you may go through a year from now, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
just in case whatever you're going through doesn't fit, Paul says there's nothing you will ever experience that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Ron Evans was at our 8 o'clock service this morning, tells this story. Ron said that uh, his son Matt played the acoustic guitar right here in the back in the middle. Matt was about four or five years old, and Ron took him fishing behind Stuckey's. They, they waded out into the river. It's shallow there, and they waded out into the river, Ron said. They were fishing when all of a sudden a storm came up, a fierce storm. And when it did, Ron said, I grabbed him, and we got to the shore as soon as we could to the bank of that river, and I just bent down over him and, and took my shirt and covered Matt. Ron said it was a fierce storm, so fierce that lightning was flashing, the thunder was clapping, uh, a tree got struck nearby, Ron said, and that tree was split in two, and he said, I just sat there in fear, but knowing that we shouldn't move, and I covered Matt while that storm raged. He said, after what seemed like an eternity, the storm subsided, and when it did, I took my shirt and and removed it from Matt only to discover that he had fallen asleep in the middle of that storm he had fallen asleep how is it that a little four year old five year old boy could fall asleep when the thunder is clapping and and the lightning is flashing and trees are splitting and the rain is pouring down. How could he ever do that? Because he knew his daddy was for him. There was something between him and the storm that took the brunt of the storm. Please hear me. I mean, every word I'm saying, I've experienced it. Some of you have experienced it. As difficult as the pain that you're going through is, God has taken the brunt of it. He has. He is between you and the pouring rain. He is between you and the claps of thunder. He is between you and the flashes of lightning. When? One Friday afternoon. When the sky went dark. When he spread his arms out on a cross. After being beaten 39 times, with whips embedded with glass and stone. When his father couldn't look anymore, and he screamed and said, My God, why have you forsaken me? 
He took the brunt of any storm you would ever face because he took the worst storm that you and I ever face, which is our sin. And when he did, he he said at the very end three words in English. One. In Greek, it is finished. And it was. It was then, it still is now. Say, so Jerry, what I do, I, I told you that I would try to hit you square in the middle of the eyes with your need for Christ. What do you do? You trust Him as your Savior. You trust Him. As your Savior, you, you give your life to Him. You believe that your sin separated you from Him and that the only possible solution is that the perfect Lamb of God who died for you is enough to save you and you trust Him with your very life. Have you? Not have you joined a church. Not have you prayed some magical prayer. Not have you done a lot of good things in your life. Have you trusted Christ as your personal Savior? Would you bow your heads?